Hey guys, what is up? What is going on? Welcome to Grow Series and MCAT Review Podcast. So in this episode, what we're going to do is we'll finish off with Foundational Concept 7. So this part of the MCAT, you know, we're going to focus on socialization. Then we're going to shift into talking about what normal behavior is in perspective to our society. And then we're going to talk about learning, persuasion, and more. As I mentioned before, this is a review podcast, which means I'm not going to go over all the nitty gritty. I'm just going to go over the bulk of the content. So if I ever get some little bits, don't, you know, go crazy on me. This is more of like a supplemental tool. So let's not waste any time. Let's jump into the actual content here. So when I said socialization, what does that mean? Socialization, it's really just like a lifelong process of interacting with others, basically just being social. So we learn how to be humans through socialization, through being social. It's literally one of the biggest teachers you have. So if you think about it, how'd you learn how to read? By interacting with other people. How'd you learn what is considered quote unquote cool and what's not? By interacting with other people. So when you're interacting with people, it can either motivate you or demotivate you. Social facilitation, it's a key word here. It basically asks, what does a social environment facilitate for you? So if you're an amazing piano player, the crowd of your fifth grade talent show actually makes you perform better. But if you're 20 points down and finally get off the bench of your JV basketball game after not practicing much all year, the pressure in the social environment of the crowd being present actually hurts. So that's social facilitation. With social facilitation, your nervous energy comes out in front of crowds. And intrinsically, your dominant response shines. So if your dominant response is being the Beethoven of fifth grade, then you'll kill that talent show. So you probably kind of notice that in real life. You know, for a lot of people, they'll be great at something in practice. But right when they get in front of the crowd, that nervous energy comes in and they go back to what they're used to. So if you're playing basketball and you learn a new free throw technique that works amazing in practice, in the game, you'll go back to what's dominant or what you're used to, which is most likely your old free throw technique. And that's all due to social facilitation. Presence of others affects our behavior. All right. And then on the other hand, we have social loafing. That's when you're in a group and you put less effort in because you're like, screw it. It's a group project. Someone else is going to carry the load. You know, every single person has had that group project slacker. And if you haven't had one, then you might just be that slacker. So social loafers are basically the people who just slack on group projects. And if you have one, then it seems to make the group less productive and perform worse. Pretty obvious, honestly. So we know socialization. It's a lifelong process of how we interact with others. But what do we use to transmit culture and, you know, pass it around? Those are called agents of socialization. So let's think about what the most important things are that shaped you. And I always mention nature versus nurture. What was the nurture for you? Well, number one is family. You know, our family teaches us how to interact with others in a ton of different scenarios. So children's basic personality is developed in their first three years of life. And family is the biggest cause of that. Usually your family's socialization techniques model your culture. So whatever your culture is like, your family kind of adopts that and therefore you adopt that too. So number one is family. Number two is school and your peers. School teaches you things in academics, sure, you know, like math, chemistry, biology and more. But there's another thing taught in school and that's called the hidden curriculum. The hidden curriculum is when you learn social skills like obeying authority, acting interested and more. You know, it may be subtle, but you're taught these super significant things by teachers. Your peers, on the other hand, also teach you you know, stuff like music you listen to, behavior you have, clothes you wear, all that. It's kind of inspired by your peers. And then the last agent of socialization is mass media. So if I was raised watching a biased news source, then I'd align my personality and how I interact with others based on that. So to summarize, socialization is how we interact with others. And the biggest things that teach us that are family, school, peers, and mass media. All right. So continuing on this vibe, we got talking about society and all that. What is normal in society? 
That's really decided by group norms. And honestly, norms are pretty self-explanatory. It's basically talking about what behavior is normal and what isn't. So there's both formal and informal norms. Formal norms are written down and informal norms are kind of just understood, but they're way more low-key. So an example of a formal norm violation is like public intoxication. So it's a law, it's actually written down, and you're not supposed to do it. But an informal norm violation is like holding up an open umbrella in the middle of class. You know, it's kind of weird. Nothing's really written down about doing that, but people just don't do it. Breaching a formal norm is something that can actually get you into legal trouble, but breaching an informal norm just makes people think you're kind of odd. Another quick little thing to know are sanctions. Sanctions are rewards or punishments if you don't follow norms. So they kind of link with that informal, formal norm type of thing. Now, knowing the difference between formal and informal norms, it's too easy for the MCAT. So they just want to make it a little harder. They decided to split norms into four different categories. So I'm going to start with the simplest, then I'm going to jump to the most extreme. So first we got folkways. Those are like common courtesy and there aren't really any consequences. A folkway is like telling your friend that their fly is down. You know, if you don't do it, then nothing bad happens to you. But why not be a homie and just tell them, right? And then there's mores, like M-O-R-E-S. That's just telling the truth, and um, there are consequences if you don't do it, but usually not catastrophic. So an example of a moray violation is like lying to your friend. It's just not a cool thing to do. So after folkways and mores, there are laws, and that has formal consequences. So something like lying under oath is a law. You know, laws are pretty basic. And lastly are taboos, and they're completely forbidden with serious consequences Something like incest or cannibalism. Now, when I was studying for the MCAT, I used to always accidentally rank laws as more serious than taboos just because I thought of murder and how, you know, life in prison is objectively a big consequence. But you got to understand the perspective you're taking here. This episode is all about society. So in society's perspective, which is worse, doing something that messes with society or something that has a pretty normal judicial consequence? You know, like which headline would shock you more? One about cannibalism or one about lying under oath? cannibalism obviously so that's why it stack ranks as the biggest deal so one more time norms are split into two ways one is formal and informal norms and another way from smallest deal to biggest deal are folkways mores laws and finally taboos all right so we talked all about norms but what happens when you violate a norm so when a norm is violated it's referred to as deviance and that sounds bad but it isn't negative all the time so an example of that is the fact that the majority of americans eat meat and eating meat is the norm in the U.S., so therefore a vegan is a deviant. You know, does that mean they're doing something bad? No, of course not. It's just different. So we kind of have a conundrum here. If we learn everything through our group norms and from others, then how can someone become deviant? You know, if everything we learn is through others, how do you get away from the group norm? Well, it's thought that there's a smaller subset of people that violate the main group norms, and you learn from observing those. So let's take the vegan example. Let's say I watched a documentary, Game Changers, you know, I'm exposing myself to the vegans in that movie. And then if I decide to become vegan, I'm connecting with people in the movie. So that's my group. And then so therefore I'm a deviant from the U.S. norm, which is, you know, eating meat. So deviance, it's clearly a learned behavior. And there's two theories about deviance. First is the labeling theory. Basically, this says we see behavior as deviant if we judge and label it as deviant. So there isn't anything wrong with an act that makes it deviant. It's all about how that culture sees that behavior. So for example, steroids are often seen as deviant and against group norms. You know, if you ask, let's say, like a computer programmer at Microsoft, he's going to see it as deviant. But if you ask if steroids are deviant at a bodybuilding competition, you might get some different answers. So honestly, labeling theory is pretty easy so far. It's just like a rehashed way of saying cultural context matters, which seems to be repeated over and over in psychology in different ways. But the tricky part with labeling 
labeling theory is that it also talks about two things, primary deviance and secondary deviance. So labeling theory says primary deviance, they're not really a big deal. You don't get a huge reaction out of them and people don't really hate on you. So a uh, primary deviance is like someone going 72 in a 70. Like, yeah, sure, you're going above the speed limit, but nobody's going to really judge you for it. Secondary deviances, those are huge. There's a big stigma and it's a whole mess. Like if you steal a car at 18 and go to jail for 10 years, when you get out, you're still labeled a thief. You're still a deviant. And it's kind of confusing here because you'd expect primary deviance to be the big deal and secondary deviance to be a smaller deal. You know, just like how Alport had cardinal traits as the core traits of personality and secondary traits as like the least important. But labeling theory, it flips that. Secondary deviance is more important than primary. And um, it kind of messes it all up. But just think about what deviance is. So labeling theory, it's all about deviant behavior. So they're being deviant and going against group norms by flipping our understanding of what primary and secondary is, right? So we usually think of primary as the main one, but we're, we're talking about deviance here. So therefore, primary is the less important one. So the other theory about deviance is the strain theory. Basically saying if there isn't a possibility to get towards a culturally accepted goal then you may just turn to deviance to get it. So an example of that, let's say, you know, there's a kid from the inner city, not really that well off, but they have kids, they want to provide for their kids. They just don't really have the financial means to. Then let's say at this point, they say, screw it. And they decide to turn to drug dealing. Obviously, drug dealing is a deviant behavior. The strain theory honestly fits this example like a glove. So they're trying to get to a cultural norm of being financially stable, but they can't do it. So what do they do? They go through a deviant behavior, which is drug dealing here, and they get to that cultural norm of financial freedom, but just through a deviant way. So in the past, a lot of what we talked about here was about groups, and there's a lot of different ways to interpret what a group is, but a group is basically equivalent to society. You got that calm, stable set of people that socialize together, and they have a solid set of rules, you know, both formal and informal. But when I talk about a collective, that's a different thing. A collective is a bit crazier. They have shorter social interactions, looser norms, and they're more open than groups, and that leads to worse behaviors. And the ones you got to know are fads, mass hysteria, and riots. So a collective, basically think of it as a crazier type of group. Collective behavior is dependent on de-individuation. Group dynamics may make you do something that you thought was wrong in a different environment, and de-individuation kind of makes you do it in that right, crazy, collective environment. So if you're in the middle of a riot, you might do something crazy that you wouldn't have done if you weren't immersed in that collective behavior. So the three types of collective behavior you have to know, like I said, fads, mass hysteria, and riots. Fads are pretty easy. They reach a lot of people in a short amount of time, and they go away in a short amount of time too. A little blast from the past here. An example of that is silly bands. We were all addicted to that at one point. Everyone was kind of trading them and stuff. You know, silly bands were a fad. Mass hysteria, that's when a large number of people have delusions at the same time and it extends even further with rumors and fears. So I don't know when you're listening to this, but right now in early 2020, there was a decent amount of mass hysteria with the whole coronavirus thing. So that's a good current example. The last one here are riots. And I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. So we'll move on. So we have a collective, which is basically a crazy group. And then there's fads, mass hysteria and riots. So now I'm going to talk about learning, you know, a huge topic on the MCAT. The most important distinction you got to know is between classical conditioning and operant conditioning. So before we talk about those discussions, you got to know the two types of learning, those being associative and non-associative learning. So non-associative learning is when you keep seeing something and you get used to it. And that repeat exposure, it kind of makes it normal. So let's say there's a ring every five seconds, you know, like a little bell. Over time, I'd kind of get used to it and I'd tune it out. We call that habituation. 
So non-associative learning is pretty simple, basically habituation. It's not really that common. I mean, it's a type of learning, sure. But what psychologists love talking about is associative learning, which is basically when one event is connected to another. So it's not just repeat exposure. There's a ton of different variables in associative learning and different changes in behavior due to those variables. And that's how we come back to classical and operant conditioning. Both classical and operant conditioning are associative learning. Classical conditioning is pretty simple. It's that Pavlov stuff we talked about last episode. If you want your memory refreshed, let's say I have a pet guinea pig named Billy Bob Joe, and then I open the fridge door to give my pet Billy Bob Joe a carrot. So after a while, Billy Bob Joe the guinea pig will get excited at the carrot, but they'll also get excited at the fridge door opening. So they tied that neutral stimuli, the fridge door opening, to the reward they'll get later. So we conditioned the guinea pig to like the door opening. So that unconditioned stimulus that the guinea pig likes is the carrot because that's just genetically ingrained in the guinea pig. You know, food equals happiness. But the conditional stimulus of the fridge door led to the conditioned response of happiness for the guinea pig. So the thing with classical conditioning is that you also face an issue of generalization. If I opened my desk drawer and it made a sound that was similar to the fridge door opening, Billy Bob Joe might confuse it and think that they're about to get a carrot soon and get really happy. So they had the conditioned response but the conditioned stimulus wasn't present. You know, they're happy from a generalized stimuli, the generalized stimuli here being the desk drawer opening. But slowly the guinea pig starts getting used to that sound of the desk drawer opening, and they find the small differences in the sound between that and the fridge, and they realize that, okay, maybe I won't be getting a carrot when that specific sound of the desk, you know, happens, and they discriminate between sounds. So that is called discrimination. They can find the difference between the fridge door opening and the desk drawer. All right, now let's assume you're an evil pet owner and you open the fridge, but you don't give any carrots to Billy Bob Joe. You know, he'll be really sad at first and then slowly not get happy to the fridge door opening anymore because he thinks it's just a lost cause. That's called extinction. So after a few months of the guinea pig thinking the fridge door opening doesn't mean a carrot is coming, Billy Bob Joe might still randomly fire a false alarm when the fridge door opens. We call that spontaneous recovery. So that old conditioned stimulus brings a response even if it's extinct. So sometimes you just kind of fire off even though that, you know, that classically conditioned response isn't really there anymore. So as you can see, tons of vocab words with classical conditioning. A quick run through, the unconditioned stimulus is what gives you the innate response. It's genetically programmed. So in this case, that is the carrot. The conditioned stimulus is what they learn to react to. So in this case, it's the fridge opening. And then the conditioned response is what they react to with, so with this new learned behavior. So the guinea pig feeling happy is its conditioned response. And really make sure you understand the difference between conditioned stimulus and conditioned response. Stimulus is what causes the response. So let's say they have that conditioned response, which is happiness, but Billy Bob Joe responds from the desk drawer opening. That's generalization. But if Billy Bob Joe learns to not react to that, they learn to, you know, find the difference between the desk drawer opening and the fridge door opening. We call that discrimination. So they're discriminating the sounds between two different stimuli. And then finally, if I open the fridge door and I don't get a carrot out, over time, that conditioned response of being happy when the fridge door opens will go extinct. But Billy Bob Joe might spontaneously recover that old behavior. That's called, of course, spontaneous recovery. So that is classical conditioning. Then there's operant conditioning associated with Skinner. We talked about Skinner a decent amount in the last episode with the behaviorist theory of personality. But Skinner was all about the positive and negative reinforcement and punishment. So specifically with operant conditioning, huge operant conditioning guy. 
So operant conditioning is a bit more complicated than classical conditioning. You know, classical conditioning was literally just random stimulus links to a prize. Operant conditioning focuses on the relationship between behavior and the consequences of said behavior, specifically how that influences our other behavior. But really the main thing you have to know about operant conditioning is just it's all about rewards and punishments. All right, so behavior has consequences. And when I say consequences, that's not a bad thing. It's just basically what happens after behavior, like a reaction kind of. So behavior has two consequences, reinforcement and punishments. So if the reinforcement consequence occurs, then we face an increase in that behavior. So if you get reinforced, you know, someone says good job, you get an increase in that behavior. But if the punishment occurs, we see a decrease in that behavior. So let's say you did something and the powers that be want that behavior to continue, aka be reinforced. Now, how do we do that? We can either do something good and congratulate them for that, or we can take something away that might prevent them from doing that behavior that we liked. So if I do something positive to reinforce that behavior, it's surprisingly called positive reinforcement. So something is being added to continue that behavior you did. An example of that is like if I gave you a gift card for gas because you've been driving safe all year. A negative reinforcement is when I take something away to continue that behavior. And the most common example is with seatbelts. You know, the annoying seatbelt sound that keeps coming on until you put your seatbelt on and then the sound stops. To continue your good behavior of wearing a seatbelt, the sound was removed. So we're taking something away. It's a negative reinforcement. We're still doing something good. So it's a reinforcement. But if we're taking something away, it's a negative thing. But let's say you did something bad. There would still be the same differentiations, positive and negative punishments. Positive punishments punish behavior that is unsafe. So we give a punishment, like a speeding ticket if someone's going too fast. And honestly, this is the best way to understand the positive and negative thing. Positive is when you give something and negative is when you take away something. It doesn't matter if we're talking about punishments or reinforcement. Positive always means giving something and negative always means taking away something. So therefore, a negative punishment is when we take something away for doing something bad. So continuing with the fact that someone is going too fast, you know, if a positive punishment would be giving them a speeding ticket, but let's say they're going super fast, we take something away. In this case, that could be their license. So to end operant conditioning, we'll talk about escape and avoidance learning. So tons of learning so far. We had associative and non-associative. We had operant and classical. And within operant, we have escape and avoidance. So escape learning is when you escape an unpleasant stimulus like fire, for example, so let's say you're thrown into this condition where you don't know what's happening and then you leave, you're, you escape. Avoidance is when you avoid an unpleasant stimulus before it comes. So we see a fire ahead of us, we kind of swerve around it. So those are both parts of negative reinforcement, which is a part of operant conditioning, which is a part of non-associative conditioning. Super in-depth, it's like a whole tree, it's kind of weird. All right, so to conclude operant conditioning, we'll talk about two topics here. Uh, that are relevant to operant conditioning, that's shaping and schedule of reinforcement. Shaping is interesting because instead of rewarding only the target or the desired behavior, the process of shaping involves the reinforcement along the way. So we break down behavior into small steps and then we give positive reinforcements along the way that can lead to learning more complex behaviors. So Skinner was the big guy behind operant conditioning. He showed how shaping works with pigeons. Basically, he'd try to get them to press a button. He'd give the pigeon food for every small thing they did. So if the pigeon turned towards a button, he'd give them food. 
If the pigeon walked towards the button, he'd give them food. If they touched the button, he'd give them food. So shaping is just kind of gradually reinforcing to get to the target behavior. Now, schedule reinforcement is important because it talks about how we use operant conditioning in our day-to-day life. So most of our behavior is partially reinforced. It's reinforced only some of the time, enough that we're resistant to the extinction of the behavior, but it's not constantly on our mind. So there's four ways reinforcement occurs. Fixed ratio, fixed interval, variable ratio, and variable interval. So those are all schedule of reinforcement. This is a high yield topic and kind of convoluted, so try to pay attention for this part. So fixed ratio, that's when we get a reinforcement after a fixed amount. So if I'm a car salesman and I sell five cars, I get a bonus. That's fixed ratio. Five cars, get a bonus. Fixed interval is when someone receives a paycheck after two weeks. So I'm getting a reward after a fixed amount of time. So one very important thing here is that with both fixed and variable intervals and ratios, if it's related to ratios, then we're talking about amount. Like when we said the car salesman got a bonus after selling five cars, but anything with a word interval relates to time. Like if someone gets a paycheck every two weeks, that's, you know, something related to time. And then variable ratio, that is reinforcement after a varying amount of correct things occur, but the certain amount changes. So let's say with a slot machine, someone can use the same slot machine a thousand times and not get a prize, but they might also use it five times in a row and win twice in those five times. You know, it's varying, but since it's a variable ratio, it's based on the amount of something, not the time. Variable interval is reinforcement based on a variable amount of time like checking your email. You don't have a set regimen of checking your email once every half hour or something like that. You just randomly check on it. You know, you might check on it at like 9 a.m., then like 10, 27 a.m., and then like 11:33 a.m. You know, they're happening without a fixed regimen, so it's variable, but it's related to time, so it's an interval thing. So variable interval reinforcement. So with shaping, you give a prize kind of to reinforce behavior during the whole process. So with the pigeon, he gave you know, a little bit of the prize, the food, as the pigeon turned their head, as it got close to the button, and finally when they hit the button, and then schedule reinforcement, there's four different types, fixed ratio, fixed interval, variable ratio, and variable interval. Ratio relates to the amount of something, and interval relates to time. Fixed, obviously, is a set amount, and then variable surprise varies. All right, and then the last topic of foundational concept seven here, and therefore the last topic of the episode, is attitude and behavior changes. With attitude and behavior changes, how do you get someone to change their attitude? You persuade them. So let's say your friend uh, Josh, let's say your friend Josh, he's scared of roller coasters, but you want him to come with you on this roller coaster. So what do you do? You persuade him, right? Well, persuasion has a super high yield MCAT term here, you know, a super high yield model. It's called the elaboration likelihood model. In summary, the elaboration likelihood model basically says that there's two ways to be persuaded, either with a message or with other superficial things like attractiveness or your tone of voice. So the message itself is the central route. It's the meat and potatoes of where you're trying to go. It's the content here. So with the roller coaster example, if I'm trying to persuade Josh to get on one, I'll bring up points like how fun they are, how exhilarating it is, how unique of an experience it is. Those are all the central route of the elaboration likelihood model. It's really the message. So this central route really results in deep processing and it can cause lasting attitude change. So if Josh gets convinced, it can change his roller coaster perspective forever. But Josh wouldn't listen to me if he wasn't at least a little interested in roller coasters. So the central route can only be used if the person you're trying to persuade is at least partially interested. The peripheral route 
is the opposite. It has nothing to do with the good arguments I made for roller coasters. Instead, there's some shallow processing of information and it leads to a temporary attitude change. So let's say Emma Watson is with me and she's going on the roller coaster with me. If Josh is in love with Emma Watson, he might just go on the roller coaster just because she is. It doesn't really have anything to do with the roller coaster itself. He's just temporarily changing his attitude for Emma Watson. That's the peripheral route. All right, so two routes for the elaboration likelihood model, you know, not too bad, central peripheral. But there's also three characteristics for persuasion that are separate. And those are message characteristics, source characteristics, and target characteristics. So message characteristics, they're about the message. It's basically the central route of the elaboration likelihood model, you know, the meat and potatoes, like I said. Source characteristics, they're all about who the source is, what their level of expertise is, how credible their information is, etc. So am I a roller coaster aficionado or is it like my second roller coaster I've ever been on? Stuff like that. That's kind of a mix between central and peripheral because you kind of are talking about, you know, the message itself, but you're also focusing on peripheral stuff. And then there's target characteristics, which are the characteristics of the listener, like the mood, self-esteem, alertness, basically how Josh is feeling. So this isn't really peripheral or central because we're not talking about the source here. We're talking about how the listener is feeling. So if they're basically having a bad day or whatever. So you have central and peripheral for the elaboration likelihood model and message, source, and target characteristics for persuasion in general. You know, really hammer in persuasion here, especially the elaboration likelihood model. All right, so we're done with persuasion and the elaboration likelihood model. Let's move on to reciprocal determinism. Reciprocal determinism is a weird, complicated word, but it's the intertwining of you and how you behave, how you motivate yourself, and your environment. So reciprocal determinism is your behavior, your motivation, and your environment. So this term, it's linked to the social cognitive theory. So reciprocal determinism and social cognitive theory are hand in hand. We went through the social cognitive theory before, but in fast forward, it's basically the thought process that behavior is influenced by how you act, how you think, and the situation you're in. So social cognitive equals act, think, situation. An important thing to note is that it was made by Bandura, aka the Bobo doll guy, so what he talked about was the importance of actions being influenced by both the situation and the cognition of the kids when they were in the room, when they were mimicking the guy who beat up the bobo doll. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I discussed that in a previous episode. So the social cognitive theory, it seems pretty broad. Let's try to apply it here. Imagine you're interested in soccer. What do you do? You join the soccer team and you spend time with soccer players. That seems like a pretty ordinary situation, but it covers all the bases for the social cognitive theory. You cognitively thought to be interested in soccer, you change your environment by joining the soccer team, and you change your behavior by spending more time with soccer players. So you kind of check off all the boxes. So another way in this hypothetical situation, let's say a girl spends lots of time with soccer players, then they become interested in it, then they join the soccer team. So her initial behavior of hanging out with soccer players led to her cognition of being interested and then joining a soccer team is changing her environment. The point is, with social cognitive theory, you have to know that action, cognition, and environment are all intertwined. We change our behavior in tons of ways, and our behavior changes our cognitions. So I'm going to hammer it in again. Action, cognition, and environment, those are social cognitive theory. All right, the last concept I'll talk about is control. Self-control, like controlling your impulses, and also personal control. So personal control-wise, you have two locuses of control. Locus is basically another word for source. So you have two sources of control, internal and external. 
and they're pretty simple. So let's say you messed up on a mock MCAT exam. You can either be like, I should have studied harder, which is an internal locus of control. You're basically talking about yourself saying, I should have made this change. I should have made that change, etc. When you have an external locus of control, you're blaming everything but you. So you'd be like, oh, the exam was just really tough or the teacher just chose really hard problems. You know, basically blaming everyone but you. Kind of common sense. But if you own up to your mistakes, if you have that internal locus of control, you usually do better in school and you have lower rates of depression. So own up to your mistakes. A sad topic related to that is learned helplessness. So if you're always faced with uncontrollable bad events, you start going like, dang, maybe I don't have any control. And your behavior actually mirrors that mentality. So you kind of passively resign to say, you know, fair enough. I don't have control. I'm going to fail, whatever. And that just leads to negative behavior. So they notice in nursing homes, if you gave the elderly control of even small things like holding the remote control, they were a lot happier and they were way more responsive. So learned helplessness, you know, make sure they don't fall in that pit of just giving up and, you know, that'll help them out. Now, learned helplessness is all fine and dandy, but let's say the opposite. Let's say you had too much control. What is that called? That is tyranny of choice. An example of that is at the grocery store, you know, when you can't decide between cinnamon toast crunch, frosted flakes, honey nut Cheerios, etc., Like, it's honestly too many choices. The more choices you have, usually the less happy you are about your choice. There's an overload of information and you get this thing called decision paralysis. But to be honest with you, this choice is easy. You should always pick Cinnamon Toast Crunch because that's the absolute goat. All right, last topic of the day is self-control. Avoiding temptations is huge. Avoiding short-term satisfaction for long-term success, I mean, that's super relevant as a pre-med. When we talk about self-control, the classic experiment, the classic study is the marshmallow experiment. Basically, they gave kids marshmallows and they said, all right, you can eat it now, but if you wait 15 minutes, I'll give you another marshmallow. So some kids, they ate it immediately, but others waited. And the ones that waited actually did way better in life when they followed up 10 years later. So self-control is a a trait that's super beneficial for, you know, long-term success. One weird thing with self-control, though, is ego depletion. So ego depletion, basically, they think that self-control It's a finite resource, you know, it's a limited resource. You use it up and then you have less in the future. So let's say we go back to the marshmallow thing. If the kid waited 15 minutes for another marshmallow, they finally got it. But then we did the experiment again with cookies. You know, we gave them a cookie, then told them if they waited another 15 minutes, then they could have another one. The term ego depletion basically would say the kids who waited for the marshmallow in the first one, their self-control is kind of depleted. And then for the cookie part, they'd be like, you know what, screw it. I waited long enough for the marshmallow. I'm just going to eat the first cookie. So ego depletion, basically, you use self-control up and then you have less of it in the future. So just like that, we are done with Foundational Concept 7. Thank you guys for sticking with me this far. We're about 60% done with psychology and sociology here. The rest of it is really psychology-based, so I won't be talking about stuff like the anatomy of the eye and all that in-depth biology stuff I went over in the earlier episodes. It'll be more like the easier-to-understand conceptual type of things. Anyways, if you enjoyed the episode, go ahead and subscribe for me. If you're on the Apple Podcast app, throw a review on. That means a lot. But before we finish, let me go over a quick review over what we went through. You know, this is a pretty short episode, but it still helps to get that repetition in. So we started off with socialization. You got to know the definition of that. It is a lifelong process of interacting with others. And the agents of socialization are family, school, peers, and mass media. Then there's social facilitation, which is when people have a nervous energy that comes out in front of crowds. And then they go to their dominant response. So if you really practice well, you really know your stuff, the dominant response is killing it. 
But if you're not 100% versed on something and you're out in front of a crowd, your response might get hurt by the pressure and the social environment. We also went over norms. Formal norms are basically laws and informal norms are societal rules. Along with that, we split norms into another way. Folkways, which are like common courtesy, and then mores, which are like telling the truth. You know, things with consequences if you don't do them, but they aren't catastrophic. And then there's laws that has formal consequences. I mean, everyone kind of knows what a law is. And then the top of the food chain with norms are taboos, which are super societally forbidden things with serious consequences like cannibalism. We went over deviance for a little bit. It's basically violating a group norm, but it isn't always bad. Like a vegan violates the US group norm of eating meat, but a, being vegan isn't a bad thing. With the labeling theory of deviance, they said there are two types of deviances you have to know. Primary deviances, which aren't really a big deal, and then secondary deviances, which is very much so a big deal. Then we talked about collectives, which are basically a collection of people that are a little crazier than groups. Groups are more stable. They have their solid set of rules. Collectives have shorter social interactions, looser norms, etc. Finally, we got really into learning. There was non-associative learning, which is like when a beep keeps happening every five seconds. So you just learn to get used to it. And then there's associative learning, which is operant conditioning and classical conditioning. So classical conditioning, it's that Pavlov stuff. You get accustomed to an unconditioned stimuli. So Billy Bob Joe, the guinea pig, got accustomed to the stimulus of the fridge door opening. Operant conditioning has to do with the relationship between behavior and the consequences of that behavior. So positive reinforcement, that's like giving you a gift card to congratulate you for driving safe all year. A negative reinforcement is like the seatbelt chime finally turning off because you put your seatbelt on. Positive punishment is like giving a speeding ticket and negative punishment is like taking away someone's license. Positive and negative have to do with giving something or taking something away. It doesn't matter if we're talking about reinforcement or punishment. We also talked about the schedule of reinforcement, which had fixed ratio, fixed interval, variable ratio, and variable interval stuff. And lastly, we had the elaboration likelihood model and the characteristics of persuasion. So elaboration likelihood model had the central and peripheral route, but the persuasion had message characteristics, source characteristics, and target characteristics. So elaboration likelihood model had two things to worry about. Persuasion as a whole had three. And then just recently here, we talked about self-control. An internal locus of control is owning up and being like, yeah, that happened because of my own actions. An external locus of control has to do with blaming it on everyone or everything but yourself being like, oh, that was just a hard exam. That wasn't really my fault. So there you go. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode six of Grow Series, an MCAT review podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email me at growseriesmcat at gmail.com. That's G-R-O seriesmcat at gmail.com. Have a good one, guys, and see you on the next episode.